Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we're going to talk about my first bar fight. That's right, taking it back a little. To quote the philosopher Joel, the good old days weren't always good, and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. But passe pop culture references aside, we are going to try to look at the nature of meaning and a little of the crisis of meaning that our culture faces right now and the way meaning is getting co-opted, sometimes with the best of intentions, but with a good deal of philosophical confusion. I still remember so much of it with clarity, even though it happened at night in a smoky bar that was dimly lit and drably decorated. The brightest light in the bar came from the pool table. But everything stands out in its own light, in the hologram of the mind. I was about five years old. That's a bit young for a first bar fight. But my grandfather was an alcoholic, and bars were his second home. He knew them all. Some he shunned, and I never knew why. Others he went to more or less daily, and I went with him. They became familiar and comfortable to me. I remember sitting at a small table with my grandfather and two of his friends. We were in a little coal patch town. That's a patch of houses that appeared because a mine had been there years ago. My grandfather had worked that mine. The mine closed down, but a cluster of families still remained, some of them living on disability payments and other meager benefits from the hard life of mining coal. The bar was a sort of focal point of that little community, along with the grocery store that was up the street. We might think of bars as depressing, but they also arise as a place of community and connection, a place where political and practical issues receive as much illumination as they're likely to get in the public space of our particular culture. It's a place where people at least make an attempt to think together about their lives and loves and to try and make sense of the world and make their way through it. As a public space, there are a lot of problems. My point is, it's not all bad. It's a way in this dysfunctional culture for people to try to make their way as functionally as they can. Well, there we sat, living the kind of life people of that time and place lived. And we could see through a window the parking lot, and the men saw someone pulling up. The mood of the table changed. They seemed disturbed at the arrival of this figure who was a stranger to me. I remember someone saying to the others, just try and ignore him. Well, this guy walks in, and eventually he makes his way to our table with his drink. He seemed to have already had a few. My grandfather eventually got involved in a game of pool. When he was playing well, he was one of the best. Not long before that fateful evening of the bar fight in the very same bar, one of the local informal pool champs played for hours. He was on a heck of a winning streak, and he yelled out to the bartender, 
Mark this day on the calendar. I am on a winning streak, and I bet $100 no one will beat me for the rest of the month. My grandfather, just at the level of tipsiness that relaxed his body enough to optimize his game, yelled, Hold up, don't mark that calendar yet. He proceeded to stop the winning streak before it could officially get started. He loved telling that story, even though he himself never had long runs of winning at anything at all. He went up to the pool table that night, and I stayed at the little bar table with the stranger. No one wanted anything to do with this fellow, and we sat there alone. At that age, I was fascinated with martial arts, especially the stylized kung fu soap operas from Asia. I have no idea how it happened, but I can see the little boy version of myself standing in front of the stranger as if we were sparring. I could see my advantage. Young, quick, not drunk. I threw my version of a karate chop at him, and I landed this karate chop on his arm. I can still remember the feeling of the fake leather jacket he was wearing. I was smiling, I was laughing, it was a game, I was having fun, it wasn't aggressive, it was definitely playful, and I was just a little kid. But suddenly, he grabbed my arm and twisted it behind my back. All the fun disappeared in a cloud of confusion and pain. He had me pinned against the wall with my arm twisted behind my back. I started to feel scared, and suddenly I heard a tremendous cracking sound. With that sound, I felt myself released. I turned to see my grandfather wielding his pool cue in the air. Whack! He hit the stranger again. The man fell backward. But he began to get up and move toward my grandfather. Whack! Another hit. That hit caused the stranger to turn and run out the door. And then there was a scene that even then, when I was a little kid, felt like a movie. My grandfather walked over to the bar, reached into his pocket, pulled his wallet out, threw some cash on the bar, and said, Sorry for the trouble. Then we left. When we got outside, we turned to get to the car. And the stranger leaped from around the corner. He threw a punch at my grandfather who blocked the punch and landed one of his own. The stranger fell back and didn't get up again. My grandfather said, get in the car. And we quickly drove off. Sadly, the first thing my grandfather said to me after a long silence was, you get your grandfather into trouble. What a thing to say to a little boy. In telling this story, you might expect me to talk about what it means. In fact, what I'm supposed to do right now, according to the mainstream marketing gurus and the success coaches, is tell you what I learned from this experience and how I can therefore help you to overcome challenges in your life. Instead, let's go deeper. Let's ponder the dangerous wisdom and powerful magic of stories 
and the empowering wisdom, love, and beauty that actually gets us through the traumas of everyday life. The wisdom, love, and beauty that carries us through the upheavals and the catastrophes that threaten to overwhelm us. The magic of stories has begun to get compromised and it seems to call out for contemplation and care. Something happens when we try to look at difficult things in our lives and attempt to make them meaningful. The ego, or our self-centeredness, wants to label and control, and that includes having control over meaning. Now this holds not just for our ego, but for conquest consciousness in general, which means it's a cultural problem. And we can't really overemphasize the importance of that. This is a cultural problem that appears in our own personal way of telling stories and finding meaning. One way to describe suffering goes like this. We try to put our own meanings on top of life. Much of the storytelling we do arises as part of that process, even if we don't realize it. And again, that applies to the culture in general as well. This keeps us trapped in the space of suffering. Our spiritual practice tries to take us to a different sort of space, the space between all stories, the space out of which all stories arise. A fancy word for this is the liminal space, or the threshold space. And most of our stories keep us away from the threshold of our own existence. Though the hallmark of a mythopoetic story, a spiritual or philosophical kind of story, is that it points us toward, draws us nearer to the threshold of our own existence. In any case, we can't cross that threshold and enter the heart of wonder until we let go of all our stories. The Tibetan word for the between or the threshold is bardo. Maybe you've heard that term. In the broadest general sense, the bardo we find ourselves in now is the bardo of stories. And the question again is, what is between the stories? The space between all stories is a space of sheer creativity. Our true nature is that spaciousness between the stories, the spaciousness that holds all the stories and gives rise to them. Meditation as a practice, in all its variety, means entering that space between stories, being that spaciousness that holds all the stories, entering the heart of wonder, entering the primordial creativity of the cosmos. Again, that spaciousness gives rise to all the stories we tell, the helpful ones and the harmful ones, the mythopoetic stories, and the egocentric and anthropocentric stories. The dominant culture does almost nothing to help us understand and enter that space between stories, that spaciousness, the primordial creative 
space. And again, the dominant culture keeps us away from it. And it does that by distracting us with stories. In the dominant culture, we face an ongoing existential crisis, a constant threat of nihilism, which comes down to our fear of the meaninglessness of life. The book The Neverending Story relates to this confrontation with nothingness, our fears about nothingness on the one hand and the profound creative energies of life on the other. What we mean by the profound creative energies of life is that when we get past our fears about meaninglessness, we discover an inherent meaningfulness in the cosmos itself, as if all the matter comes from a profound mattering, a cosmic meaningfulness. The physicist John Wheeler called this it from bit. Matter, the it, arising from a more primary kind of cosmic information, the bits. The it comes from the bits and not the other way around, which is what our mechanistic view of the universe has us thinking by default, even if it's an unconscious thought. Our culture orients us to think that matter comes first and meaning seems to come on top of the matter in such a way that we feel a deep, unconscious, at least partially unconscious, doubt about the meaningfulness of life. Hence the crisis. We fear that life might be meaningless. And this, of course, goes all together with our, our ignorance about death, our lack of a sense of purpose, the whole way the culture functions. So setting the physics aside, spiritually speaking, we suffer because of the mismatch between the meanings we project onto life and this inherent meaningfulness of the cosmos that the spiritual and philosophical traditions orient us to realize. The meanings we project never work in part because we try to hold on to those meanings. We try to nail them down. Suffering arises from and as blockages to the flow of meaningfulness of the cosmos itself. If life arises in, through, and as a flux, a fluid of impermanence, then meanings never stay the same. Meaningfulness flows, evolves, develops, unfolds. We, of course, experience cycles, but the cycles arise as spirals. Each spring is just what it is, and we cannot compare it to any other spring. Each ceremony and celebration, each rite and ritual, may seem to have much in common with past ceremonies and rituals, but each one arises only once. When we engage in a ceremony, celebration, rite, or ritual, we enter into a mystery. We participate without closing down, but rather by opening up, 
that means not closing down on a meaning either. For the ceremony to function, something must remain unknown as an object of knowledge, and therefore we cannot ever speak the full meaning of a ritual or a ceremony. We cannot speak the meaning of our love. We cannot speak the full meaning of our lives, not fully, not analytically. We can't turn the ceremony and celebration of our lives and our loves into an object with a fixed meaning. No more than we could turn a loved one into a fixed object with a fixed meaning. When we try to tell a story about something we went through, we ever so subtly get caught in that process of turning something into an object and fixing it, fixing it in place, trying to hold it. You see, because we have to become a particular person, this person who went through a particular experience, that experience, and learned a particular lesson, that lesson. We. Get fixed in time. We sort of become a thing, an object. The experience becomes a thing, and what we learn becomes a thing. But if life itself arises as ceaseless teaching and learning, a ceaseless flow of meaningfulness, then we have to take a great deal of care in looking at a situation, any situation, and seeking a meaning with our habitual mind, our inherited. Conquest consciousness. Let's try and think of the basic flow of the cosmos as meaningfulness, and our habitual way of thinking as a quest for meaning. Meaning on the one hand, meaningfulness on the other. This is all a bit subtle. It's not easy to get at what we're trying to get at in this contemplation, but maybe we could find an analogy in tango. Tango is a totally improvised dance. In a crowded tango hall, everyone has to take care so as not to bump into anyone else. It requires a lot of skill when you are improvising the dance, and everyone around you is also improvising. And everybody wants to allow the expression of the song, the expression of the connection between themselves and their partner, and the expression of the room as a whole. Every dancer knows that the best moments come through us. We don't do the dance. We don't manipulate or control it. We can't control the meaning of those moments. And when something beautiful happens, we can't just stop in the middle of the dance floor and shout, "Did you see that? That was so cool!" We just keep dancing, knowing in an intuitive way that the beauty we made resonated in our partner's soul as much as in our own. That it resonated with the music. That it somehow affected the other dancers, even if we can't objectively see how. It even affected the band and maybe shaped their playing. Our dancing contributed to the whole of the dance. 
The attempt to stop and point at what we did is like looking for meaning. The way of remaining engaged with the dancing is like participating intimately in the flow of meaningfulness. We directly engage, not even as a person engaged in a thing, but fully engage and let things flow as if we are the flow. The flow flows itself through us as us. We don't stop the dance. We don't bother taking credit. We don't even sense mistakes as a problem, but only as more opportunity. If we participate deeply enough in the dance, we can never step outside of it to analyze its meaning. But we have a profound and intuitive feel for its ongoing meaningfulness. All of this relates to the magic of synchronicity, too. In one way, we could say synchronicity should get a new definition. We often find synchronicity defined as a meaningful coincidence. Instead, we could think of synchronicity as a happening that ruptures the blockages of meaning that have captured us, an event or process that breaks through the barriers to the flow of meaningfulness we have created as part of what we call karma, habit, and the general cycle of stress and trauma our culture initiates us into. Synchronicities disrupt our stories. The stories we keep telling ourselves about ourselves and about our world. Our habitual way of telling stories limits and harms ourselves and others. Now this does not mean we should abandon all attempts to give meaning to difficult things. Finding meaning in difficult things can be life-saving, and sometimes we have nothing else at our disposal to try and heal from life's challenges. We find meaning as a way to cope and even to begin to heal. At the same time, the attempt to project meaning onto upheavals and traumas tends to indicate a need for love wisdom a need for care and compassion that goes beyond what our usual stories can reach. Our self-centeredness always seeks a bargain from life. The ego wants to know what it will get in return for its trials and tribulations. Our self-centeredness gets caught in the pinch between gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and ill repute. If we experience loss or tragedy, we seek to gain from it, and we may even seek praise and fame. This is a sensitive subject. It bears repeating that many of us have a genuine need for making meaning out of trauma, stress, strain, and upheaval. It is no sin to follow any ethical means 
available to heal. At the same time, we can ask about even deeper needs we might have and more profound healing we might discover and allow for ourselves. Quite often, the ego does need some semblance of balance before we can address the needs of the soul, which involve an even greater sense of peace and well-being, insight and inspiration, creativity and courage. Moreover, all spiritual, religious, and philosophical traditions make use of stories, all of them. I use them too. Stories can bring powerful medicine to us. Stories can help us heal. Even telling our own story about a traumatic experience can help us to heal from it. Just that, just telling the story in the right kind of context, in an open and honest way. Truth and Reconciliation in South Africa is a very good example, but personally this works as well as culturally. Acknowledging all of that, in fact, helps us to understand the issues at play here. It is because of the importance and the magic of stories that we raise these issues. Because first and foremost, the power of stories is now being co-opted by the mechanisms of the marketplace. These forces collude to distract us from a central teaching in all the great spiritual traditions that make use of stories. What is that central teaching? That the highest truth goes beyond all our stories. The best a story can do is point us toward it. But we are not a truth that can be told. We are not a story. Or else we could just tell that story and wake up completely from our delusion. It doesn't work like that. We somehow have to get past all our stories. What that means is that if we look with care, we can sense that the game of making meaning out of suffering becomes a fast track to spiritual materialism. The self-help industry alone, as a major force in the culture, does a lot to encourage us to find our story, to tell our story to use social media to talk about adversities we have faced and promote our experience in facing difficulty. We essentially brand ourselves using the magic of stories in order to succeed in the marketplace of hope and fear. But so many of these stories are all the same as far as the style of consciousness that tells them. Many of these are not archetypal stories that attune us with reality, but rather something like non-archetypal stories. We might call them typological stories, stories about types of people and types of experiences we find in the pattern of insanity of the dominant culture. Everything is circumscribed within that pattern of insanity, and everything colludes to perpetuate that pattern, including our stories. We don't necessarily see that deep, deep layer of sameness, though we can at least notice some of the aspects of the recurring patterns, 
For instance, we find Horatio Alger stories all over the place. These are not archetypal hero mythologies, but stories of a person who went from rags to riches. And that's pretty much it. So many coaches, executives, and thought leaders tell us their hard luck stories and how they went from rags to riches and how we can do it too. They offer to teach us how to get past the stories we tell ourselves that supposedly limit our success, limit our ability to participate in the economy. And they put this euphemistically. We could say they put it misleadingly. And they tell us we are limiting our abundance. They teach us how to replace our old stories with new stories that will supposedly empower us, that will give us an abundance mindset and help us to become wealthy. What if the soul doesn't have any interest in these sorts of stories? How many spiritual traditions have a story that goes like this? The sage, the prophet, the hero enters into the mystery of life, comes back and tells everyone, I know how to make you rich. Did Socrates, Jesus, Buddha, Confucius, or the peacemaker have a story about starting a company, making money, learning marketing tricks, setting up a sales funnel? What if our soul has more interest in wisdom, love, and beauty than it has in personal branding? What if the problem we face has to do with identifying ourselves with any story? whether good or bad? What if we need freedom from all our stories, not just the ones that supposedly limit us or the ones that supposedly enrich us? Let's think again of that central spiritual teaching. The truth of the soul transcends all the stories an ego can tell. And that sets aside, that particular formulation sets aside the cultural problem. We have to keep that cultural dimension in mind. The cultural story supersedes all our personal stories in a general way. If the culture's basic story or style of storytelling exhibits insanity, that insanity can infect all our stories without anyone's noticing we're talking about a style of consciousness here, how stories are told, the mind from which they emerge. And we should consider carefully what it says about us if we have to measure our worth by our stories, and perhaps especially our stories of suffering. My first bar fight happened not so very distantly from the time my mother came home to find me bawling my eyes out while lying on the floor, tied up painfully in an extension cord. Why? Because my grandfather had tied me up with the cord and done it so tightly I couldn't get out. And I was pretty panicked by the time my mother came home. Now why did he do that? Because I had watched a movie about Houdini and I wanted to try my hand at being an escape artist. I really suddenly thought I could be Houdini, and my grandfather apparently wanted to make it clear to me 
that I was no Houdini, as he so often made clear to me that I could never saw a board or pound a nail to his satisfaction either. But let me make it clear, I did not have a very traumatic childhood. My tiny little traumas can't hold a candle to the incredible suffering people experience in the inner cities and in the sacrifice zones right here in the United States, let alone the horrors that occur in other places in the world, including places destabilized by the United States, by my very lifestyle here, your very lifestyle here, the good parts and the bad parts. My childhood was a walk in the Garden of Eden compared to what so many others have suffered. And let me make it clear that I suffered no real physical abuse. We had very little money. Neither of my birth parents had college degrees. But we always had food and a functioning car. And in countless ways, I recognized the relative privilege of my childhood. Not only that, but it never helps to compare wounds. Suffering is relative. And most of us do quite a lot to explode our pains into bigger ordeals than they need to be. Some of us go through extraordinary traumas, shocks, and catastrophes, and don't make a very big deal of it at all. And sometimes those people come out gentle, open, and kind. Other people facing similar traumas might come out hardened and reactive, or even significantly shut down. In any case, extraordinary suffering is not a golden ticket to liberation, nor are any of our stories. Notice that Buddha, Confucius, and many other sages spoke relatively little about their biographies, at least as far as we have on record. Buddha certainly shared some important elements of his life, but he didn't flaunt his suffering or his struggle. He didn't tell everyone his story, but rather he told people how to discover the true nature of self and reality, which is not a story in the sense we usually mean when we talk about telling stories. Buddha taught people about the structure of reality and experience. He taught insight and inspiration, love and liberation. And he didn't tell a lot of typological stories. He didn't emphasize his personal experience of suffering. Jesus didn't go around giving an I was born in a stable speech. And we are the ones who emphasize his experience on the cross. He got on that cross freely mysteriously, and he never hung it over our heads. Mainly the zealots do that. Think of Socrates. He's a founding sage of the dominant culture, although he might be embarrassed by that. We've gone quite a ways away from his sense of wisdom, love, and beauty. But Socrates is an important figure for us. He inspired Gandhi and Martin Luther King. But do you know much about his story? 
He didn't tell a whole lot of stories about himself in the records we have. He focused on love and liberation. He focused on the present moment. Because of his students, we know he lived a philosophical life, and we know some of the details of his life. But he himself didn't talk much about being a stonecutter or living in relative poverty. He didn't talk a lot about his personal suffering. Neither did Martin Luther King, who held up Socrates as a model. King spoke about the suffering of all people, not just his own suffering and not even the suffering of black folks alone. King saw a larger archetypal story playing out, and he tried to attune all people with their souls, with righteousness. Some of this can feel a bit too radical. We don't have to get overly radical, and we certainly don't want to get spiritually nihilistic. In fact, we're trying to cut through spiritual nihilism and spiritual materialism. Nevertheless, this contemplation might seem confusing or provocative. Like most of these contemplations, it bears repeated listening. But let's be clear: your life matters. Your struggles matter. Everything you do matters. But your life matters at a cosmic level, not at the level of the marketplace, and not in the ordinary sense. Of the personal that we cultivate in the dominant culture, we often behave as if the most interesting things about us are our suffering and how we think we overcame it, or how we think we cannot possibly overcome it. We may not think that consciously, but that's how we behave, and so often we relate to each other. Through our suffering, we commiserate together. We eat our emotions together. We numb our pain together at bars, sporting events, private parties. We try to build victories together too. We try to triumph over suffering and adversity, and we even try to triumph over nature. Again, we do that in practice, even if we personally would never say. That we want to triumph over nature. The story of the dominant culture is one of domination over nature, and so all our personal stories feed into that, even if we proclaim values that differ from the values of the culture in its practice. To weave our stories in the midst of this culture. Is to weave ourselves out of and into the fabric of this culture. It takes more than merely telling our story or telling a new story to unravel the tapestry of the dominant culture. And that's in part because, as we have said, the true meaning of our life outstrips all the stories we tell. And all the suffering we endure, the real triumph over suffering is a spiritual experience, not something we talk ourselves into or something we can actually take arms against. 
Moreover, we often allow our suffering to cut us off from others. There's a kind of ironic tragedy there, and it's, of course, a little bit incoherent, because on the one hand, we do relate to one another through our problems and our suffering. We have a kind of problem and suffering mentality. But at the same time, we often get caught in seeing our suffering, experiencing our suffering as something that cuts us off from others instead of deeply, intimately experiencing suffering as that which connects us to everyone. We can get pretty stuck in thinking no one could possibly understand our suffering. And stories can actually feed into this problem. If you ever read the Odyssey, you might recall the story about the sirens. So here we are, we're using mythology to liberate ourselves from the stories of our culture. Many people have heard this story. One of the impossible things that Odysseus had to accomplish involved safely sailing past these sirens. The sirens were deadly creatures who sang to sailors. The sailors would find their songs so irresistible that they would run their ships aground and listen to the songs without moving. They sat there until they died, unable to eat or drink. The shore of the island was littered with bones and with shipwrecks. What did they sing? What did they sing that a sailor would find so compelling? What did they sing to Odysseus in particular? No one else survived to find out what they sang. Everyone who heard them died. But Odysseus had himself tied to his ship's mast. And he had his sailors stuff their ears with wax so that they could not hear, but he could. He ordered them to keep rowing and not to cut him loose till they had gotten well out of earshot of the sirens. So because of his little ingenious plan, we know what the sirens sang. They sang to Odysseus about his suffering. Strangely enough, they didn't actually sing his suffering, but merely promised to sing it. Odysseus was at war for ten long years. That's one hell of a tour of duty, which must have been filled with incredible stories, incredible horrors. Soldiers can feel that unless someone was in the battle, then they couldn't possibly understand what it was like. The sirens sang to Odysseus that they knew all about his experiences at war, and he must have felt very tempted to hear his stories sung to him. So often, even though our suffering connects us with all sufferers, we can feel cut off from others who we think cannot understand our suffering. Now, by this logic, we would actually reject some of the greatest teachers the world has ever known. As far as we know, Confucius and Jesus never went to war, never experienced sexual abuse, never experienced a host of problems. Nevertheless, 
we might still go to them, right? And why? Because they have medicine for us. We go to Buddha as a teacher, not because of the suffering he experienced, but because he understood the whole problem of suffering. And he understood the nature of liberation. He had medicine that could heal the whole cycle of trauma and stress that plagues us all, the whole cycle of storytelling that reinforces the ego, reinforces our self-centeredness in countless ways. The problem is not finding out we have bad stories and then telling better ones, but liberating ourselves from that very cycle of telling stories and trying to project meaning onto life, which then fails, which then makes us tell more stories, and on and on we go. Similarly, we would listen to the teachings of the peacemaker, not because he had gone to war, but because he understood the nature of peace itself. He brought peace to people trapped in a mindset of aggression. He carried big medicine to the Haudenosaunee, who still live out that medicine today. We go to spiritual teachers not because of their stories of suffering, but because of their insight into love and liberation, their insight into peace, healing, joy, and wonder. We go to them because of their intimacy with sacredness. Nevertheless, we do need empowering stories. Stories of courage and resilience. Stories of love and liberation. We benefit from hearing how others faced adversity and got beyond it. We even need our own proof to ourselves that we survived something awful, that we grew beyond something that part of us thought we could never get through. Can we allow that need for reassurance and encouragement to have its place without covering over the larger part of our soul, the part already so liberated and empowered that it never questioned, never feared for us, even a moment? Right now, in our culture, we have more abstract awareness of stories than perhaps at any other time in history. And that means the magic of stories has gotten turned against us all. That the power of stories now has its energy diverted into furthering the pattern of insanity that has us in its grips, that has entire ecologies, the whole planetary ecology in its grips. Marketing gurus talk about the power of stories and they use stories to make money and to promise us success and fame. So-called thought leaders venerate the magic of stories and they use stories to gain followers and to promise us misguided solutions to complex challenges. So many 
Stories in our culture reinforce the ego, reinforce self-centeredness with extraordinary subtlety, so that it may go unnoticed how much we collude in all our storytelling to perpetuate the pattern of insanity that degrades ecologies, creates massive inequality, and perpetuates bondage and oppression in ever more sophisticated ways. Even well-intentioned people now contribute to something that seems almost silly to say. We have a story crisis. The pattern of insanity has taken over the magic and power of story so effectively that this good medicine has become a dangerous poison, even for those who are trying to heal the stories of the culture. We have to get very still in order to get our medicine back. It seems we need to pause our storytelling. Relax into stillness in the presence of everything we hear about story. Take a hiatus from all the story, hype, and hoopla, however well-intentioned. And in that pause, in that hiatus, we can find the magic of story in its very source, which is spaciousness and silence, not talking. Why are we talking here together? We allow this talking here together so that it might turn us to silence and spaciousness. We speak here together so that it might empower us to challenge the forces of the culture that have captured the magic of stories and cut us off from the profound meaningfulness of our life together, a meaningfulness prior to all the stories we tell ourselves and each other. We know the stories of our culture, don't we? We know the characters. We know that rags-to-riches fantasy. We know the tales of the scrappy entrepreneur, the stories of success from the self-help gurus, the stories of losing weight, finding love, discovering a life purpose, becoming famous and respected, unleashing abundance, the miracles of the law of attraction, writing a best-selling book, creating an online course, and all the rest. We find countless stories about the triumphs of the ego and the victories of the dominant culture. But the spiritual traditions teach us that our ultimate victory is a triumph over all the ego's stories. All the narrow meanings we could say about ourselves and our world, all the insanities of a culture out of attunement with wisdom, love, and beauty. Our spiritual traditions also teach us that our life arises at the interface of the personal and the impersonal. 
the universal and the specific, the interface of unity and diversity. But our culture and its stories emphasize the personal, the individual, the fragmentary. Our culture emphasizes stories with plot lines that turn some protagonist toward gain, profit, and fame, while a wise, loving, and beautiful culture would emphasize stories that turn us toward success in the spiritual sense, toward realizing our true nature and fulfilling a holistic and sacred purpose. In the dominant culture, the mythological gets covered over by the egocentric and the anthropocentric. So we have to take care with stories that valorize the triumphs of the ego that show us how people wrested their own meanings from life. Because stories of this kind tend to involve encumbered archetypes at best, or a lack of true archetypes altogether. That's another way of saying what we just said a moment ago. The stories of our culture tend to lack what we might call a mythological or mythopoetic vitality. And yet we have a sacred need for that mythopoetic vitality, which means we have a sacred need for stories that attune us with life, stories that help us touch our unique cosmic purpose by putting us in touch with archetypal patterns. Those stories scare us, consciously or not, because they indicate that the meaning of our life transcends all our agendas, all our hopes and fears. They have less to do with personal victories than they do with a kind of surrender of the ego to sacredness and wonder. Those stories teach us to let go of all our attachments and thus to let go of all our habitual stories and our habitual way of relating to stories, telling them and hearing them, so that we can participate in a flow of meaningfulness that goes beyond our habitual imagining. Our true nature has no attachment to our stories, and the ever-present origin of all things goes with us through all the stories, and it will outlast every trace of them. Spiritually, we want to arrive at the space between stories, the spaciousness out of which stories arise, letting go of our egocentric and anthropocentric habits of projecting meaning onto the world and onto other beings in the world. Again, this is a cultural problem. Egocentrically, we use stories to pacify the ego and bolster its sense of control. And culturally, we live in a pattern of manipulation and control. 
we look at the mess of our lives and try to make meaning as a consolation, as a way for the ego and the culture to feel better and to get ground under its feet. Now we can find a good deal of energy going into rationalizing the dominant culture. People in the dominant culture look at the mess it has made and try to focus on the supposedly positive aspects. This affects all of us. High-level intellectuals like Steven Pinker try to rationalize the entire project, the whole of the dominant culture's history. He's not alone in telling the story of the success and progress of the dominant culture. The rest of us do this too. We talk about all the supposedly wonderful things that came out of the dominant and dominating culture. There may indeed be good things in the dominant culture, but we must avoid the error of pulling at fragments, which is what this style of storytelling often encourages us to do. A core issue in Western culture, perhaps the core issue, is fragmentation. If we try and pick our favorite positive aspects of this dominating culture and then weave a story from that, we miss the real complexity and ambiguity of the culture and our lives. We have to look at the structure of the dominant culture the style of consciousness it manifests, and thus begin to sense how every single thing in that culture arises in that style of consciousness, including all the storytelling that happens in that culture. What is that style of consciousness? We could look at the whole of the dominant culture as an attempt to make meaning on the basis of egocentric and anthropocentric storytelling. It's a conquest consciousness. We perpetuate that style of consciousness when we try to rationalize that culture and tell stories about its benefits. Now this is a parallel to looking at the upheavals of our own personal lives and trying to tell stories about what we gained. And to say it again, there might be good things in our personal life, and in the culture. But we have to look with more sensitivity than we usually do. It seems we need more sensitivity here because we're already caught up in the style of consciousness that created the whole political, social, economic, and ecological catastrophe we currently face. From the standpoint of the dominant culture, our contemplation here amounts to pessimism, Uh, or a lower vibration, or a scarcity mindset, or something that's irrational, or any number of suggestions that distract us from critical thinking. What we're actually doing is looking for our greatest abundance, our greatest possible wisdom, love, and beauty. And we find that in the meaningfulness of the world itself, not in our stories about it, including stories about capitalism, including stories about New Age thinking, law of attraction, on and on and on it goes. The deeper mythopoetic story of the dominant culture is simply more complex than the way we like to tell the stories of ourselves and our world. 
And whenever we pick something good about the dominant culture, then what we might not see because of the nature of that culture, we have simultaneously picked up something bad directly attached to it. And our stories rarely touch this complexity and duality. For instance, we might pick out antibiotics and call them good. But directly attached to them are all sorts of negative side effects, including the whole of the medical-industrial complex and our entire way of life in the dominant culture. Every time we use antibiotics, we wreck our microbiome, we create resistance, and we cover over all sorts of natural medicines, including natural antibiotics. We cover over the fact that we only use antibiotics because of the entire story of the dominant culture, which did not have to go the way it did. People like to pick things like gender equality and even racial equality. But part of the way patriarchy and hierarchy in general established themselves had to do with wiping out cultures where those things did not exist. And we're not trying to romanticize indigenous cultures. Rather, we're trying to be honest about the fact that patriarchy, hierarchy, and racism are not necessary to cultural development, but that those things did become a keystone of the dominant culture. And that's how we got the supposed victory of liberty, gender equality, and so on. The point has to do with an end to our romanticizing about the dominant culture itself, which still has racism and many forms of inequality. The patriarchy is still there. Economic inequality is still there. Militarism is still there. This is still a conquest culture. It seems like it's not so easy for us to see the ways male privilege, white privilege, and human privilege go all together in the dominant culture, and that they further go together with what we call progress, economic progress, economic development, technological development. We use this word development, even though in ecological terms, development means degradation. So our story about development and progress is, from the standpoint of the community of life, a story about degradation. Even when we try to become critical of the dominant culture, we end up romanticizing and even enacting that culture. The very things we want to claim as progress or as good come from our style of consciousness, our ingrained habit of egocentric and anthropocentric storytelling, our whole way of trying to get ground under our feet and our unwillingness to let go of things in our culture that ultimately we've gotten addicted to, but which don't come without significant negative side effects. And those negative side effects should probably make us rethink whether we want those things at all, or at least should make us wonder if we'll be able to keep them in a living, loving world irrespective of how much we might like to think we need them or how much we just want them.
Now, after all that, you still might ask, okay, but what about the bar fight? Did you learn anything from that? If we've suggested anything, at the very least, we've suggested that meaningfulness flows. The meaningfulness of that bar fight keeps flowing into all sorts of things. And now you too have become part of its meaningfulness as you and I share in the same basic flow of meaningfulness. In other words, instead of receiving it as an egocentric story, we could try and meet each other in that flow of meaningfulness. And we might then discover and create wonderful things together. Now I could say, at the very least, that I can appreciate the human drama the way I do because of the tremendously encumbered patterns my grandfather had with himself, with my grandmother, with me, with the rest of his family, with the world. He was like a father figure to me because I lived in his household for the first four years of my life. And because of all the experiences of my childhood, I can appreciate the encumbered male figures in our world who do their best in a culture that doesn't support a life of wisdom, love, and beauty, a culture that doesn't support them in maturing into wise, loving, and beautiful male adults, and eventually cultural elders. Patriarchy and conquest consciousness oppress us all. Our style of storytelling oppresses us all, even those who seem to benefit from it. It appears that the way to end the stories of patriarchy and conquest consciousness, stories of egocentrism and anthropocentrism, involves getting beyond the style of storytelling that those cultures engender. I tell lots of stories, sometimes skillfully, sometimes not so skillfully. Stories have a liberatory potential, a potential for healing and transformation. To unleash that potential, we can do our best to let go of all our ways of blocking the flow of meaningfulness in our lives. And we can lean into the deeper myth and poetry, lean into the inconceivability of the cosmos, and engage more intimately with the spiritual practices that can help to guide us home. To unleash the fullest positive potential of stories, it helps to clearly understand that stories don't exist in isolation. A story depends not just on what is told, but on why and how and the larger cultural context. The why of our stories has to do with our intentions as storytellers and as listeners who co-create the meaningfulness of the story and the world. Why do we tell our stories? Do we tell our story to sell something, to feel better, to get someone to trust us, to commiserate, to shore up our identity, to cover over our delusions, our ignorance, our errors, to practice self-deception, or to help someone else practice self-deception? It seems we need to look carefully at our intentions and our style of thinking, our whole feel for the cosmos, our feel for the cosmos, as we tell and as we listen to 
stories. Do the stories come from a profound intimacy with the cosmos and with the nature of our own mind, the truth and truthfulness of the soul? How we tell a story doesn't have to do with the physical gestures we make, not so much that or the linguistic gestures we make on the page. Spiritually speaking, when we talk about how a story gets told, it's not so much about the words and ideas, but the quality of our being, the nature of the heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos we presence as we tell the story. How do we tell a story with such tenderness? Tenderness that goes beyond being precious or indulgent, but a tenderness that begins to soften us out of our habits, out of our delusions about everything we think we know. How do we tell a story with the kind of raw tenderness that opens us to the nature of mind, the nature of reality, the nature of sacredness, and the purpose and meaningfulness of our lives. We may speak of a story coming from the storyteller's mind, but a philosophical approach allows us to sense that a person could tell a story so that we who receive it share the same mind. We can tell and listen to a story so as to enter the same mind together, a mind of mutual liberation, a mind of interwovenness, a mind of magic and mystery, a mind of wisdom, love, and beauty. Our stories can thus make the world in more skillful and graceful ways. We need more stories like that. Stories about the mind of nature and the nature of mind. Stories about landscapes. Stories that tell us about where we live. Stories that connect us intimately with the community of life. We need more stories about our ancestors, about our lineage. True stories about our lineage. About where we came from and how. Stories about the karma we inherited from our ancestors and how we can heal it. And also about the gifts they bequeathed to us and how we can best offer them for the benefit of all. We need more stories from the perspective of ecologies, from the perspective of indigenous people and the whole community of life. Stories of the mythopoetic dimension that will help us all to become indigenous again, help us to relate with our non-human family, stories that will help us attune to the sacredness of this world and our cosmos. We seem to need a practice, a practice of stories, a practice for receiving stories, a practice for receiving stories from each other and also for receiving stories from the landscapes and ecologies, from the non-human beings, from the archetypal energies, from the sacred powers and inconceivable causes that 
sustain the whole of our lives and the whole of the community of life here in this world. We need skillful practices for working with stories in such a way that they help attune us to reality and open up to the soul's calling, open up to the full spectrum of experience and realize our true nature and purpose. If we sit quietly together, gather around campfires and dinner tables with a silence and stillness in our hearts, the stories we need will come. As long as we practice keeping free and being together wisely, compassionately, gracefully, in a flow of meaningfulness we share with all beings, we can receive our stories from ecologies of mind that transcend our egos and our agendas. We can listen, not telling the stories to each other, but receiving them, discovering and creating them at the same time with the help of all beings and with the magic of the sacred powers and inconceivable causes that give rise to all good things. What do you think? Why are we so fascinated with stories right now? How many self-help programs have asked you to get over your limiting stories, but maybe failed to put you into a truly empowering contact with your own nature and with ecological realities that sustain us all? What stories have helped or healed you? What stories can you see now as more toxic than you first thought them to be. Maybe you thought them completely innocent at first, but you began to see the openings they had for spiritual materialism. Send in your thoughts and questions through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll consider some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. <laughs>